Welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Women are not well represented in senior positions in many career fields and sectors. While that fact is well known, what isn't is that the same is also true in the field of art. The National Museum of Women in the Arts is the only museum exclusively dedicated to celebrating women as artists. It was created by Wilhelmina Cole Holliday and her late husband Wallace Holliday, and it opened its doors in 1987. After more than 30 years, it is still the only museum of its kind in the world. Today, we'll bring you the Holliday's interesting and inspiring story. We will talk to Wynnon Holliday, who is the museum board vice chair and also daughter-in-law of Mr. and Mrs. Holliday. And we'll also talk to Susan Fisher Sterling, who has served at the museum for 30 years and as its director for the past 10. Winnen, Susan, welcome to She Said, She Said. We're delighted to have you this morning. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Winnen, let's start with you. How did the museum get started? Your mother-in-law has a great quote in her book, and she references the art world's most astonishing blind spot. What did she mean by that? Well, when it began, it really had nothing to do with women and art and the museum. It actually had to do with a very loving couple doing so many things together, uh, mostly traveling, but collecting art. Uh, my mother and father-in-law loved to travel the world, and they had a passion for art together. And their collection was really what they saw when they traveled and what they loved together. And truthfully, at that time, probably mostly were male artists. They started spending more time and putting more efforts into collecting and a friend of theirs was a collector of contemporary art, Robert Brown Baker. He said to them, if you really are going to spend more time and put more efforts, you really need a focal point. And that really resonated with both of them. But the pivotal uh, moment was for them when they were traveling in Spain, mm -hmm. and they went to the Prado. And this was in what year? This would have been in the early 70s. Okay. Early 70s. And they saw a Flemish still life piece by Clara Peters, 17th century work. It was this female artist. They were drawn to the piece not having anything to do with who the artist was. And, mm -hmm. But then they wanted to find out more about that artist. And when they came back home, they looked in the survey art course books that she had mm -hmm. at home and recognized that, again, and it was in the early 70s, that there were no women artists in this general survey book, H. W. Jansen. She's referenced this in her book. Um, and this is like sort this, of the be-all, end-all be, on this art was history, the right? The be-all, end-all, exactly. So, and not the obvious, not the Mary Cassatt or the George O'Keefe mm -hmm. or Frida Kahlo. That was, as I say, pivotal. She started thinking, well, there were these women, but why weren't they written about? And there's this void in art history that needs to be filled. So then they started collecting more. They decided that this would be the focus. Wherever they went, mm -hmm. they would ask little 
art dealers and galleries, what do you have here by women artists? And a, a majority of the work that they started collecting in the beginning were from earlier times, really mm -hmm. starting with the Renaissance, because they realized that there were many exceptional women artists who did practice and have careers mm -hmm. in that day, and yet were omitted from the art history books. Which is amazing. So how did the idea for a museum itself come about? Exactly. So they, as I said, they had a passion for collecting and never did they start a collection with the ambition of opening a museum. Truthfully, it happened because the collection started outgrowing the walls. Mm. And they in, start, in their home. In their home. They had a they have a home in Georgetown and they love living with the art. They, they did start having some docent tours, mm -hmm. but the whole idea of the museum, I, I think, just snowballed because she thought for a time, what will I do with this art when I don't have enough walls? She knew that if she gave it to another museum, Unfortunately, when we opened the museum in 1987, I think 2% of the work hanging on the walls of the National Gallery of Art were by women artists. So I think she knew that if she gave it to a bigger institution, the collection, that it would not be showcased. But there was a friend from the National Endowment of the Arts, Nancy Hanks, who I think really is credited for giving her that idea, you should open a museum. Very interesting. If you were to take a tour, we are on location here mm -hmm. at the museum today. If, if we were to take a tour with your mother-in-law, what would be her favorite pieces? What would she tell you her favorite pieces or maybe a favorite piece would be? Well, I think that her favorite pieces would start with some of the first pieces she collected. Mm. For instance, Vigie Lebrun was Marie Antoinette's court painter. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there was a huge retrospective of her work at the Met last uh, year. Mm -hmm. And this, this first piece that she purchased of Vigia Lebrun was in that exhibition. She also purchased a sketchbook of Vigia Lebrun's that had about 28 portraits of Russian royalty, I believe. So th I, think, I think that would be the fondness and the memories of the pieces that meant so much to her starting the collection, mm -hmm. but then we could fast forward to a more contemporary time, and I would bet that most people now would say, when you think of Billie Holiday, what is her favorite piece? And it would be the Louise Bourgeois Spider mm -hmm. that she most recently purchased last summer, and she always, always was a fan of Bourgeois, always had it in her mind that she was going to get a spider, and she did. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, Winnan, you have degrees in art history, both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. Correct. And you serve as the vice chair of the museum currently. How did you begin your work with the Holiday family? Did this happen after you and your husband were married? Or at what, what point did this melding together of your academic background and your personal interests and all those things come together? Well, I've always said it was the golden egg in my lap to be involved <laughs> this way because I went from my college dorm to marrying the founder's son. There was not 
any collection at all at that time focusing on women artists. This was in early 74. Mm -hmm. Just started after that. So I was able to be involved from the very beginning. I studied art because I actually had my first art history class here in Washington, D.C. at Holton Arms School when I was a senior in high school. I loved it from the beginning. I wanted to continue in college, and I wanted to continue with my master's, not as much, I'm ashamed to say, for a professional reason, but just because I had a passion for the field. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's always a great introduction to any city when you travel, and and I, I loved it. Again, I had this golden egg to all of a sudden have the involvement of uh, working with my mother and father-in-law. They would send me on buying trips to the auction houses and Mm -hmm. it was, I was in my early 20s and it was their checkbook and their checklist and I could bid on these pieces and so I have some great memories of the pieces that are here that I personally brought back for them. So it was a, a, just been a, a wonderful opportunity to yeah. uh, work with the family and stay in a field that I so yeah. appreciate. And to be here from the very beginning to create something that is so special and so unique. That's amazing. I know you must know some interesting stories about some of these pieces. Could you share with us one of those stories? One of the best stories is about one of the most iconic artists known that's Frida Kahlo. This is a great example of some of the fabulous stories and ways the collection accumulated. Billie Holiday went to a luncheon and was seated next to Claire Boothloose. Claire Boothloose turned to her and said, I would like for you to come to my apartment because I have something that I think that you in the museum would like. I believe she lived at the Watergate at that time. Mm Billy had no idea what she was talking about, but of course she went to visit Mrs. Luce. And in fact, she had a Frida Kahlo. It's our painting of tribute to Trotsky. The story is that Claire Booth Luce was actually visiting with Frida Kahlo when Trotsky was assassinated. I believe there was some kind of affair between Trotsky and Frida Kahlo. When Kahlo received the information with Claire Booth Luce there, she wanted to destroy the painting. Claire Booth Luce said, no, I will buy it from you, I will, we should preserve it, and I will take it home. So that is how it came to Washington, and then in fact, she offered it to the museum. That is amazing, yeah. that's an amazing story. Hopefully we can get a photograph with the painting. That's incredible. Susan, what makes the holidays focus on women artists back in the 1960s so unique? Well, I think that the fact that the holidays focused on women artists was a unique perspective for collectors. I don't know of any other collector at that time or set of collectors who looked at this issue Mm -hmm. in the way that the holidays did. That said, there was a movement in universities around the country where you had feminist art historians, particularly Linda Nochlin, who by 1971 was writing articles like, why are there no great women artists? Mm -hmm. And it is amazing, sort of like the way Winnen was talking, to have the passion in the field that was beginning to come about Mm -hmm. interweave with the passion of this couple 
to create a collection that really was representing those exceptional women who persevered against all the odds. Why do you think this is still the only museum of its kind in the world? I find that shocking. And I, you know, I, I have great fondness for this museum. My husband and I got married here 12 years ago. It's beautiful, beautiful space. Anyone who comes here, you know, marvels at how incredibly lovely it is and how great the collection is. But I think most people don't realize it's literally the only museum of its kind in the whole world. Why? I think the answer to the question of why the only one is a really hard question to answer. When the museum started, it was terribly controversial. And I think that that controversy was because, in some ways, uh, Mrs. Holliday has this great line. She says the feminists thought of the museum as some white gloves establishment and didn't want anything to do with it. And the old dowagers, which I think she meant people in Georgetown Her friends <laughs> at the time, <laughs> thought it was some kind of feminist organization and they, they didn't know what to do with it particularly and didn't necessarily like it. But uh, the museum steered a centrist course and the rest is history. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the rest is the rev revising of art history. But what she doesn't talk about is what most men felt. And I think that because the museum is specifically dedicated to women in the arts, it really challenges the status quo. Mm. And I think you have to have a woman of vision, or a man of vision, it could be, who, an empathetic male as we sometimes call them, who takes that on as their, as their uh, cause. Because otherwise, who's going to do it? You're rocking the boat in a really, really big way. There are a couple smaller institutions, but there's no other major institution, and I think that's also a measure of the dedication of the founder, mm. the board, the constituency groups, the upwelling of public support. You know, originally somewhere near 50,000 people joined the museum. We still have mm. a huge membership, and it is an idea that resonates. And sometimes it's nice to be in some ways the only one, although I would like a sister institution. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? It would be great. Wouldn't that be nice? We have members who have never set foot in this museum. Really? But because of the cause, have supported us, which oh, I think is amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. And supported us to the tune of seven figures. Wow. Without ever having visited. Wow, because they love the concept that's and right. recognize how important it is to the art world. So. So Susan, you have been the director of the museum for 10 years now, but you've actually been here as part of the museum and on the staff of the museum since the, the, since the doors opened, so more than 30 years ago. What is it about your work at this museum that really inspires you and keeps you going? What I love about working at the museum uh, or being a part of the museum, having spent my professional life here, is that I am working in that intersection where the art really is a mirror on our society. And if the landscape of art doesn't include but a few women, what does that say about society in general? And so I, that's sort of what has carried me all this, all this time. I also, to be honest, feel that if you have a great place where you work and you have are working with terrific people and you feel that sense of purpose that the board builds with you, there's nothing that makes a day better. Mm 
than that. I used, oftentimes start my day I'm going down into the galleries because I, as a director, you're the creative enabler for others. And I always like to remember why I'm doing it. So I pick out a work of art, I take one of the uh, gallery stools, and I go and I sit down in front of a Frida Kahlo, or maybe a Magdalena Abakanovich, or a Micheline Thomas, and I enjoy the fact that this is the reason why I'm doing the work. And you can't get a better day started than a day with art and then a cup of coffee when I get back to my office. <laughs> That's amazing. That's really amazing. Let's talk a little bit more about your work here. I've heard you talk about some of the different ways in which museums curate and how they can have an impact on the way in which we think about diversity in art. Tell me what you mean by that. How does the curation process have an impact on how we think about that? The art world changes, but it changes pretty slowly. And when museums develop exhibitions, for a very long time there was this idea that you just developed exhibitions and you didn't really think that much about the context in which you were operating. And if the dominant culture was male, then you showed a lot of men artists. And even now, even though various museums are trying to show more women artists, and to some extent trying to show more artists of color, the statistics are woefully bad. Hmm. For us, as a museum, we really do look at the context in which we're operating. So showing women is no issue for us. We can show women artists, especially in contemporary, forever. Uh, we sometimes show men as what we call comparative material, uh, <laughs> about 2% men, I'd say, uh, depending on an exhibition. But we really are looking now to make sure that we can help be one of the museums that's at the forefront by showing more women of color. Mm -hmm. Because if you're a woman and you're of color, you're still in the smallest minority in terms of the number of exhibitions as solo shows, etc., that you are a part of. Our Magnetic Fields exhibition just this past year was a good example of how you can help to redress that imbalance by one show and then obviously other shows that'll come to, that we'll create in the future. Yeah, it's so interesting to me because, you know, I think about the art world as being a place where creating things that are provocative and interesting and that push the envelope is precisely what happens in the art world. And yet, you would think that a focus on women would be such an obvious component of that. And it's really, it really hasn't been historically. It hasn't been historically. And it's, all in, it's interesting to us that it also is a question of how women artists are valued in the marketplace. Mm. And even when you think of the collections in the Renaissance, Lavinia Fontana, who is the earliest artist represented our, in our collection, late uh, 16th century, she was a great Bolognese artist from Bologna in Italy. And then she was the court painter to one of the first pope from Bologna, Clement VIII. And she received a lot of recognition. But it was very rare even when women artists of different eras were able to have a career or were attached to a family mm -hmm. of wealth that helped them to develop their careers. The same thing can happen now. If you think about 51% of women, of artists are women today, and the fact that they're only represented at most by 
uh, galleries at a 30% level. Or if you look at the art market where you see that of the top 100 women, uh, of the top 100 artists, only three last year were women. Three! And of the top 10, none were women artists. Then it tells you something about the playing field, but also about what collecting is still about. That's so interesting. And it's 2018. That is it's, really incredible. It's 2018, and it is incredible. So there are lots of systems, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, that have to change. It's not just museums. It's the art market itself. It's the way collectors think about women. It's the way women artists also are presented through public discussion and dialogue. And it's the way women are allowed to pursue their careers as artists, which, like with men artists, can be challenging. But I think there are additional challenges that women still need to overcome. On the other hand, you have great success stories like Louise Bourgeois or uh, Cindy Sherman, mm -hmm. uh, Judy Chicago, many, many other women who actually their names are out there in their lifetime and continue to be out there even after in some cases, like Magdalena Abakanovich just recently passed away. She's still an art star and will continue to be such. Yeah. I know you're a big fan of this notion of core collection or this idea of what's called core collection, a lending and sharing model as I understand it, which is sort of a, you know, there's a lot of symbolism behind an art museum that's, that's focused on women artists and sharing and collaborating. Talk a little bit about what that means. As the museum moves forward, we're trying to create what we call core collections. And the reason, the reason I think core collections are important, uh, Laura, is because you want people to be able to see that women artists just didn't create one work. They created any number of works and that we have a good collection of them. I'm hoping that in the future, we can work with collectors, especially those who have their own 501c3s, and show their work to the public to be able to share our collections so that when we want to um, create an exhibition that is our collection exhibition, we have loans from other collectors. What that does is it shows that there are these people collecting out there and they're collecting women artists. But what it also does is it makes our collection more dynamic so that anytime you come to the museum, you can see new art that you haven't seen before. We don't really love that old idea of the fusty museum that just stays the same. Mm -hmm. We like that idea of being forward thinking and dynamic and always sensing that even through loans, the museum can be a very interesting place for you to come to see new art mm -hmm. all the time. Talk a little bit about what goes into planning an exhibit, um, which I know is a big part of your job, and I suspect most people don't really know what goes into that. Why is this oftentimes a costly proposition? Sort of walk us through sure. what happens as you plan an exhibition. So when, I, when you plan an exhibition, there are a lot of moving parts. I will say that I am now the I mentioned the word before, but I now am the creative enabler. I work with women and the board and our development department and many others to help find the funds to be able to create exhibitions. And it is, it is very much the largest focus of fundraising mm -hmm. is to help fund exhibitions. The reason for that is that when you start with an idea 
and after you test that idea and determine whether you think the public will really be interested in it, there's a three-year time period for the development of most exhibitions. You have to decide what the checklist is going to be. You have loans from all over the country or the world. If you're, represent, if you're showing a single artist, you wanna have the best works by that artist shown. Oftentimes, if the artist is living, you're working with that living artist. And so it, even, it takes six, eight months even just to get the checklist put together. And then you go out for the loans, and some people say yes, and some people say no. Art transportation, you have to bring it in. It takes funds to be able to design the space, to create all the graphics, to develop all of the content. Then you have to communicate that out to the public so people can come. So communications is key. Uh, you know that they'll be interested if they know about it, but they have to know. And the other thing too is then we always do a lot of interpretation or bring the artist's voice uh, to the public. And so you do a lot with your education department, uh, with your public programs that you offer, so that the artist's voice uh, gets out there and so that more people learn about this particular woman artist. I'll give you an example. In February we'll open up an exhibition of Ursula von Riddingsvard. Mm -hmm. And very few people know her name but they have to see her great big monumental wooden sculptures that she crafts with a chainsaw. So this is a woman of weight and heft. <laughs> and whether you look at her work or you come in November to see our first uh, foray into fashion with the Malivi sisters, a, an art fashion duo that has created Rodarte, a California label that has national and international recognition, we're oftentimes introducing artists who aren't very well known in various disciplines and fields to the public. And it takes a lot of funds to be able to do all the pieces, parts that go into an exhibition as well as time. Sure. What else is on the horizon? The vision for the future really has its basis in Mrs. Holliday's early core values. She was all about women artists, women in the arts, which means performing arts, literary arts, as well as visual arts, although we spent most of our time talking about visual arts today. So she was about women, she was about the arts, and she was about a social action that established this museum, essentially a social cause. She took up a neglected, forgotten group and brought them forward. If we look at the statistics now, the statistics, we've moved the needle a little bit, but not nearly as much as most people think. And in fact, I believe that most people want to think things are better because they, they have this desire to think that things are better in society. But as we see around us, it's not always quite as good as we think. And so there's that need to continue, and in the museum field, continue to champion women in the arts. And we can do that through active social media, our hashtag Five Women Artists campaign, about being able to ask other people. I think it was over 500 institutions in discovering artists in their region and talking about what is it about uh, getting women artists into museums. How do we do that as a, at a grassroots level? Our public programs are under the moniker Women Arts and Social Change, looking how women and the arts can be change agents in the world, and we pair women 
artists with people in other disciplines. We did something with Monica Mayer this last year that was all about the issue of violence against women Mm -hmm. that became very topical the minute we were working on the project. To be able to show the museum as showing great art that also has social engagement is really a key component of the future. We want our collection to grow. It's very important to have the best work by women artists so that if one day people look back, they say, oh, that is like, that." the Women's Museum is like the Museum of Modern Art or the Tate. If you want to go see women artists, that is the place to go. And so that quintessential collection is very important as well. And then we have these great national and international committees. And we have a network of those. And they do grassroots work on behalf of women in the arts. And we're looking to grow those committees. Because if we can get the word out, then there is going to come a day when women artists are really represented properly in collections around the world. And that is the vision. That's great. I think we are so very fortunate to be in the building that we are in. The building was purchased, obviously, to start the museum in the uh, mid-80s. The building was actually built in 1907 for the Masons. So it's somewhat ironic that this great institution of women's art is in the male Masons Lodge. But more importantly, going forward with the opportunities that we have growing this museum, we have such a great facility. We often talk about it as being a convener. And physically, we have four main floors dedicated to art, showcasing art. But we also have a fabulous 200-seat theater And we have the foremost archival library in the world on women artists. So we're two and a half blocks from the White House. We're not on the Mall, but I actually think that's a good thing. And we are very grateful for this space to celebrate women. We're a team. Mm -hmm. And believe me, this museum wouldn't be what it was without the leadership of the founder and what she did, and however she's the first to say, mm-hmm. it was with so many others. And it, But she made this what it is. She set a tone. She set a tone. The really great thing is that Mrs. Holliday always believed that it took everybody to be able to create the museum and then also to make it uh, possible for it to flourish. When I look at the future for the museum, I think we're doing a lot of the things that Mrs. Holliday, our founder, believed in from the very start, which is it takes so many great people to help move uh, a museum forward. She was the founder, and no one can ever replace a founder. They have a drive and a vision that's incredible. But what I love about the museum now is we're able to continue to work with Mrs. Holliday, to speak with her, to uh, talk about things over with her, and to help realize her vision through a board and staff engagement Mm -hmm. that is strong, that is collegial and healthy and an interesting and good woman's Mm -hmm. model. Mm -hmm. So it's very, it's a wonderful thing as a director to have 
a board and to have a vice chair who can follow in our founders' footsteps and enable that kind of collegial forward progress to happen. Mm -hmm. It's yet another example of women leading and collaborating together. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Okay, a question for both of you. For those of us who have small children or maybe those of us who do not have the benefit of an art history education, how should we learn about art appreciation? What's the best way to maybe expose our children to art, to teaching them to appreciate art? How do you do that? Bring them to the museum. Anytime I come down to the museum and I experience a school tour that's, that's visiting, I just love stopping and listening to what they have to say and they pick up and see things that we might not. I just think for the opportunity for them to come and explore on their own without even any structured tour, that gives them that independence and that opportunity. When you think about how many works of art there are and the variety of works we have, all different kinds of artists, periods, media, etc. I We always have said there's something for everyone. So I see uh, children, everyone from preschoolers who come in and they come in with the little rope and they travel around the museum all holding on to this rope and they see all different kinds of things and it's very funny when the rope goes one direction or the other because some child is just <laughs> totally excited about a work of art she's just seen or he's just seen. That moment of that authentic experience with a work of art that looks like you or speaks to you in a way that you become engaged and you just can't take your eyes off of it, that's what museums are all about, yeah. that sense of wonder and engagement. It just brings back such memories. So from the beginning, when the doors opened and I was down here as a very young mother, I would often bring the children. One of their favorites actually was not walking through the gallery space, but going up to the auditorium. I mentioned we have a 200-seat auditorium, and playing on the stage. <laughs> it's just that, again, freedom and letting the children have their independence to explore and be exposed to art in whatever form is a gift. Yeah, yeah. So we ask each of our guests on the podcast, typically, for a single piece of advice or life hack that they live by or that they give to someone else. But I think in the interest of the two of you, what I would like to know is what's your absolute favorite piece of art? What is that piece that speaks to you that maybe you saw for the first time and thought, oh my gosh, this is what I love? Uh, I referenced earlier I had the opportunity to go and buy uh, some of the pieces that are now hanging in the wall and of course that has a special fondness to me, uh, provides a special fondness. And, and the pieces that when my mother and father-in-law first started collecting, often my father-in-law would purchase a piece, of course it's purchase a piece that she's already told him she wants, and he would surprise her. We would have Christmas Eve dinner at the house, and she would come to the dining room, and behind her, up above the fireplace, would be a new painting. Oh. Finally, she caught on, because this happened several years in a row, but, but I, I remember specifically those artists and that experience of her first seeing the painting that 
he purchased for her as a gift. So we, we have a piece here by Barbara Hepworth, an alabaster piece. She did, I think the process was direct carving. She hand polished all of this alabaster. Originally it was purchased and it was in, of course, the Holiday Seniors Home and our children couldn't wait to come in and put their hand through the void, the holes, and my father-in-law would grab their hand on the other side and tug it. So to me, it's that, the, the memories. And then it's also the stories of the women that have accomplished so much that uh, uh, under such odds that they weren't allowed to go to the schools, the academies, and yet they uh, had great professions and, and some had nine or ten children. So I, I think it's a combination of, of knowing the stories about these women's accomplishments and then my personal stories of how the collection came to be. That It's a long answer that I can't yeah. single out one artist. Well, I, I think we'll have to do a, uh, a, a, women's, a women's tour where she tells the behind the scenes of how certain things came into the That's collection. That's a great idea. I think we're going to do great that. Idea. Okay, Susan, how about you? Is there, a, is there a favorite piece or a piece that really spoke to you originally that turned you into an art lover from a very early age? Certainly there are works of art that I saw when I was young that, that I loved. And I, I, I had the good fortune to grow up in, at the Cleveland Museum of Art. And so that was a fantastic uh, collection and m when my mother was taking care of my little sisters they would send me off to uh, the Cleveland Museum for classes on Saturday mornings and so I was able to look at really great Asian art which mm -hmm. the museum Cleveland Museum had one of the great collections for a museum in the West and so I spent a lot of time in those collections. But what I would say in terms of the museum itself, this the, the National Museum of Women in the Arts, when I am in the galleries, it is a little bit like the, the last piece that came into the collection is now my favorite. <laughs> That's um, good. And uh, so the bourgeois spider is currently my favorite, and I spend a lot of time looking at this spider which could symbolize a woman, could symbolize a weaver, could symbolize danger, could be all kinds of things, but I like to look mostly at how it seems to be moving all the time, even though it doesn't move at all. Uh, so I, I do, uh, when I sit down on a, on a given morning and take a look at a work of art, I do tend to gravitate toward that work. But I gravitate toward the Romedios Varro, the, um, a piece called La Llamada, The Call. Uh, and Varro was a Spanish-born artist who worked in Mexico City. She was a surrealist. And here in La Llamada, you have this woman who ha has this trail of people coming out of the woodwork because she has this call. And that reminds me a little bit of Mrs. Holiday. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. And then I also love the Shakaya Booker, which is a major piece of sculpture that's a wall sculpture that's 20, almost 20 feet long, made out of recycled tires that looks like a giant drawing made with all these thrown away tires, and it's called Acid Rain. And so it's a commentary. So I, I think there are so many works to be discovered that I could never have a favorite. Yeah. But I have lots and lots of favorites. Right. That's for sure. 
Winnin, Susan, thank you so much. This was amazing. If we're lucky, maybe you'll take us downstairs and we'll take a couple pictures with some of your favorite pieces or the ones that really speak to you. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Well, and thank you for thinking of the National Museum of Women and the Arts. Of course. Of Thanks course. So much. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. To learn more about the National Museum of Women in the Arts, as well as Winnin and Susan, you can visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There we will post show notes, some photographs from our day-to-day -day at the museum, as well as links to how you can come and visit the museum, support the museum, all those good things. Remember, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening.